Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We are continuing our Easter series today on the resurrection, and the message title today is Images of the Resurrection. So let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 35 to 41, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Most of us have stood at the gravesite of a loved one. I have one memory that I must confess here has haunted me for years. It was at the gravesite of my brother-in-law who died in an automobile accident in his 30s. He was a delightful man of God. And as we left the graveside, I looked back through the car window. I gazed at his coffin standing on the barren Alberta ground. It was early March and the weather was unseasonably cold. Wind was blowing, weather conditions were so bitter that we couldn't linger at the grave for very long. And as we got into our warm cars, I looked out the back window and I gazed at the coffin, those horrible conditions, and I was filled with despair. I mean, leaving his body alone on that barren ground to be laid in frozen earth was, well, it felt like death was mocking, calling out that its power was ultimate and complete. I know that some of you are going to question my faith, that I describe the event in the way that I have. And you might question how in the face of such promises from the Word of God, in the face of the resurrection of Jesus, that I would be so overcome in that moment. But in my despair, I was not denying the truths of the resurrection. But who would deny the deep sense of grief that is real and felt at death? In 1 Thessalonians 4.13, the Apostle Paul writes, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. The point of the passage is that we do grieve, but our grief is different. The death of a loved one does reduce us to weeping, even as Jesus wept as he stood at the grave of his friend. But there's something decidedly different. The grief, even the despair that we might feel is but for a moment. It is not weeping and despair as a way of life. Today we're studying 1 Corinthians 15 verses 36 to 41. Paul has been arguing that the hope of the believer is that death is not the end. Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, was raised bodily from the dead, and so shall we be. But as we know, he was raised three days later, and in our experience, our loved ones have died years ago, and they remain in their tombs. And so it's not surprising that we should ask, just how are the dead raised? So I'm reading 1 Corinthians 15, 35 to 41. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same. There is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. Now, since our text begins with the word but, we should therefore assume that our passage is a contrast to the last section. In the last section, Paul has been arguing that ideas have consequences. People who were denying the resurrection had corrupted their morals and were living without a mission and the courage to share Christ with others. 
because they did not live with eternity in view, they began to live for themselves and only for this world. That's why Paul uses the phrase, you foolish person. You see, according to Proverbs 12:15, the way of the fool is right in his own eyes. According to Proverbs 13:16, a fool flaunts his folly. And Proverbs 15, verse 14 says, The heart of him who has understanding seeks knowledge, but the mouth of fools feed on folly. From all of those passages and more, we get a picture of what the Bible calls a fool. A fool is in love with his or her own wisdom. They're both arrogant and they're ignorant. And that's what Paul was talking about in Corinth. Some believers were saying there is no bodily resurrection from the dead. Look at it. The body dies in dishonor, and we assign it to the grave and to the tomb, and there it remains, and there it dissolves. That, says Paul, is the wisdom of the fool. In love with their own wisdom, right in their own eyes, and unwilling to learn the wisdom of God. And so to those who simply refuse to believe that these dead bodies will or even can rise, Paul begins with the words, you foolish person. Harsh words. But to those of us who are willing to learn and yet still struggle with doubt, what evidence can we give of the resurrection of the body? Are we to assume that a buried or a burned body can possibly live again? Why not simply accept what our eyes witness, this body is gone? And to that, Paul provides three very powerful analogies. Let's look at each one of these and consider what each analogy has to teach us about the resurrection of the dead. First is the image of the dead being raised to life from the image of a seed and the resultant plant. Look again at verses 36 and 37. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. Now, those of you who have a close relationship to farming immediately understand this analogy. Every spring across the Canadian prairies, there are farmers who do something that if you've never seen it before, would look almost insane. They take seeds of grain that could be crushed and turned into flour for bread, seed that could be used to feed both themselves and many others, and instead of using it for food, They bury the seed over vast tracts of land, placing it where it is absolutely impossible to ever find again. To all intents and purposes, that seed is lost. Now, I know, I know, someone is going to write me an email and it's going to say this. But you know, the seed really technically doesn't die at all. It germinates. Well, yeah, yeah, I know, I know. But the analogy remains unchanged. The actual seed itself gradually disintegrates into the earth, even as a human body does. It's it's placed into the earth, and gradually it disintegrates. Now look again at verse 36. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. Now reading that sentence in English makes it sound as if it's in the active voice. But in the Greek, the verb to come to life is actually in the passive voice. The older King James Version used the older word, and it says, is quickened. And that probably gets at the idea better. The idea that is being communicated is that God himself intervenes and a transformation occurs. Same is true of us. Were it not for God, the dead human body would simply disintegrate. But given that God intervenes, we anticipate that life will come from that which is planted in the earth. Okay, let's move to verse 37. 
What you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel. Think about the relationship between a round seed and a stalk of grain growing in a large prairie field. As we all know from nature, what is sown and what is grown is not identical. Yes, of course, it is true that what is sown and what is grown is directly related as one comes from the other. And so what is raised really is raised from what is sown. But it is something different. And that's exactly what we find at the resurrection of Jesus. Even though it was him, it was his body, and his disciples did recognize him, yet at times they seemed to struggle in order to recognize him. Let me suggest an analogy. Imagine your best friend at graduation from high school. You're both 17 or 18 years of age. Now imagine that you don't see each other again, but you do run into one another when you're both 70. Is that the same person? Is that the same body? Well, yeah, it is. Once you reconnect, you you get over how different you look. You really do accept the other is still the same person, and yet you marvel how different you are. And that, I think, is the answer to those who ask, will we recognize our loved ones when we see them bodily raised? It seems to me that there are both similarities and dissimilarities. The body that is to be is indeed different, but it is a body that rises directly out of this body that is planted in the earth. See, every once in a while, someone will ask whether if it matters if a person dies at the age of 20 or at the age of 90. Will the 90-year-old appear old in eternity? And then someone will ask about someone who has special needs, and if someone has sustained an injury, what will they be like? So think again about the seed analogy. The body that is raised comes from the body that is planted, but it is different. What is sown and what is raised is very different. And that's why I think the concerns that we have are soon laid to rest in the analogy of the seed and the stalk of grain that comes out of it. The newness of the body that comes will be so far superior to that which is planted in the earth. But Paul is still not done. He still has two analogies that will tell us what the resurrected body of the believer will be like. What a great response to the release of our first few episodes of Truth and Life Today videocast. Questions are arriving daily to add to the list. Questions regarding the work of the Holy Spirit, heaven and hell, marriage, questions specific and general regarding the Bible and Christian life. So your question could be next. All you need to do is join us online at backtothebible.ca and click on the Truth and Life Today link. Ask your question or listen to the current or any of the past episodes. Every week, join Dr. John Newfeld and explore the Bible together. New episodes of Truth and Life Today can be seen every Tuesday online on the Back to the Bible Canada YouTube channel, on our mobile app, or Facebook. For more information or to offer a gift to support all the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, call us at 1 800 663 2425 or visit Back to the Bible. We've studied one of three analogies telling us what the resurrected body of believers will be like. The analogy of the seed to the stalk of grain tells us that the body that is to come will rise out of this present body and that it will have some very real differences from the body that we presently have. Let's now consider the second analogy. 
1 Corinthians 15 verse 39 says, For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. Again, we have an analogy. We know that in the physical world, not all bodies are the same, neither do they play the same function. If God, in his infinite variety, has made all manner of bodies able to fulfill the function that he has assigned to them, why should we think it strange that he will create a body for us assigned for the function that it is to play in eternity? And so it seems clear that even as our present bodies are fit for this earth, and they are subject to a cursed earth, we see that God has another body designed for us when we are resurrected to eternal life. So I've often been amazed at the diversity in the physical world. You know, because I love the ocean, I find ocean life to be fascinating. I find that a starfish is one example. Starfish have this unique ability to replace an appendage after they lose one. Now, my body is of a very different kind. If I lose an appendage, it's permanently lost. I find the bodies of birds to be amazing. Why are they able to fly? And, and scientists tell us that the bones of birds are hollow with air sacs and thin, tiny cross pieces to make the bones stronger and lighter. They have an enlarged breastbone that helps with the force thrust on their wings. And so from a scientific perspective, the design of their bodies are perfectly engineered for flight. Or consider the hip joint of a household cat that allows it to leap many times its height. Consider the following interesting features of animals. Did you know that the heart of a shrimp is located in its head? Did you know that slugs have four noses? Did you know a cow has four stomachs? Did you know that a giraffe has no vocal cords? That an elephant is the only animal that can't jump? And that the eye of an ostrich is larger than its brain? Did you know that the feet of mountain goats have an inner pad that actually forms a grip that allows it to hold on to rocks? And doesn't all of that make you wonder how the creative God has made all things and will construct a body fit for life in eternity? God's ingenuity, his endless variety, his wisdom in design will come into play in our eternal bodies. Will the body to come have lungs that are dependent on oxygen the way that our lungs are today? Will we need to eat or is eating only for pleasure in the body to come? So I even asked the question of whether the body to come will need to eliminate food or does it in some way simply metabolize it in some fashion. See, I can't help but wonder whether in some fashion the unique nature of our body will inspire a scientific program of discovery in which humans will be more than curious about how this whole thing works. You know, if we stumble and fall, do we bruise? Or is the body simply able to catch itself if it stumbles on a rock? I can't wait to begin to learn how a God of endless variety and creativity, a God whose design is astonishing, plans to design our bodies in the age to come. And so, two analogies so far. The analogy of the seed and the stock of grain and the analogy of the endless varieties of bodies that God makes. But Paul is still not done, for he has one more analogy. Listen again to verses 40 and 41. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. 
Now, this analogy may seem the most difficult one to understand, but in the Greek world, the term body can refer to a flesh and blood body, but the term can also be used for a planet. The Greeks often called this world a body. But what's the analogy here? See, I think we miss the point if we think that the issue is all about how large a planet is. Rather, please notice that in verses 40 to 41, Paul uses the term glory six times. Now, substitute the word glory with the term splendor, and then think about the physical objects in this world and their splendor. For instance, if you take a trip through British Columbia's Rocky Mountains, the term splendor will come easily to mind. Or for that matter, stand on the shore of the Atlantic, looking out from St. John's to the harbor and watch the glaciers drifting into the bay, and splendor again comes to mind. And yet the splendor of these two physical realities is a very different kind of splendor, even while the one word, splendor or glory, seems to describe them both. And I love to tell the story of being on top of Hawaii's Mount Mauna Kea and looking through a telescope and observing the planet Saturn with its rings. Again, I was taken up in glory or in splendor. And so think about the stars. See, in the context of the passage, Paul compares the glory of the sun with the moon, and then after that, he compares the glory of the stars. Did you know that at present, the largest discovered star has been one that's been called V.Y. Canis Majoris, which is about 2,000 times the size of our sun, and if they were placed next to each other, the glory of one would outdo the other to such a degree that we would hardly be able to notice our sun. Now, if you want an analogy here, think of one of those big round balls that sometimes have an entrance into it, which a person enters and then, you know, rolls inside of it down a hill. I mean a ball as big as that. And then place that ball next to a tiny grain of sand, and there you get a sense of the difference between our sun and V.Y. Canis Majoris. See, the point is here not that one person's glory is going to outshine others in heaven. The point is that what is to come is a greater glory than what is here in this creation. Witnessing things in nature that eclipse other things in nature tells us that the God of infinite creativity assigns varying degrees of glory to certain objects here. Hence, the glory of what is to come vastly outshines the glory that exists now. See, in the same way, the body that is to come outshines the present body in glory. It's for this reason that I like verse 40. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. Let me abuse that verse for just a second. All of us have heard of people who have what we call a heavenly body. Perhaps we imagine a young woman with a perfect figure and a perfect face. The perfect woman on the cover of a fashion magazine. Or perhaps, as the ancient Greeks did, they tried to capture the perfect male form in a sculpture. I mean, no fat, having muscles in all the right places. But I think that's Paul's point. The glory of a perfect human form pales when compared to the glory of the human form that is to come. It's like comparing the sun to V.Y. Canis Majoris. If the two bodies were placed alongside of each other, the perfect model next to an ordinary body in eternity no one would even take notice of the body that reflects this present age. The beauty or the glory of the body that is to come simply outradiates this present body. 
Now, in human terms, one of the problems with being enamored with the human body is that it often leads to things like pornography and the lust for illicit sex. But in the age to come, there will be no sin. And I suspect we are going to be overwhelmed with human beauty, with the sheer glory of the human form, which we will all have. Well, let's put Paul's three analogies together. From the analogy of the seed, we understand that the body that is to come arises out of the present body, but it's different. From the analogy of the various forms of animals, we get the idea of a body created to perfectly serve its purpose. And from the analogy of the stars, we get the idea of beauty and splendor and magnificence and glory. And here, I think, is the point. God has so designed the present world so that we might, from observing it, understand that the resurrection from the dead is not a far-fetched idea at all. After all, Are seeds not buried in the earth and give rise to new life? After all, does not the Creator showcase His wise and infinite creativity, designing life exactly suited to its purposes? And after all, does not the Creator assign to some objects a glory that supersedes the rest of creation? And therefore, does it seem like such a stretch to imagine that these old, tired bodies will rise again? Does it seem like such a stretch to imagine that after our body has been laid in the grave, that we, like Jesus, will rise? And does it seem like such a stretch to say that what lies before every single human being who hopes in Christ is a glory that staggers the imagination? Has not God already given hints of this in the way he created this world? John, I've got to tell you uh, what you've just taught us today, I found quite exciting. And I'm not sure I've thought of these three analogies the way you've explained them. And I think it's quite revealing to me about what I don't know about the resurrection and, and why am I not more interested I mean, part of that, Ben, I think is that, you know, we have not taken enough time to to plumb the depths of some of the Bible passages that, well, frankly, are actually quite clear. Uh, so we need to take the time to do that. But, you know, also, when I think about the analogies that Paul uses, those analogies from nature, it strikes me, Ben, that God has so arranged nature in such a way that by looking at it, we'd understand what he's talking about when he talks about our resurrection. So I think we would do very well with the Bible teaching in the back of our mind to to witness some of the things that we see in nature and then say, oh, yeah, I do remember that that's what it's like. Um, So, you know, if you live on the prairies and you're watching, you know, the time of seeding in the springtime, uh, it's a good time to think about, you know, this is indeed an analogy of what happens at death. And that's the expectation that we have whenever we have a funeral service and a burial after that. Yeah, these are wonderful things to think about and consider in our walk with the Lord. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. I attended the Quest Conference for Men in Ottawa last night and was blown away. Dr. Neufeld spoke and hit a bullseye with me. He most certainly has helped me on my journey to having a close, intimate relationship with God. Well, we're so encouraged by comments like these. And to know that the ministry of Back to the Bible Canada and the unique Bible teaching of Dr. Neufeld is making a difference. Speaking at a conference or the many other ministries like Back to the Bible, Laugh Again, In Doubt, Truth and Life Today, Back to the Bible Kids are only possible because of your gracious commitment. 
So please know that your investment in Back to the Bible Canada is both critical and deeply appreciated. To discover more about these ministries or available resources, or to offer a gift to sustain and grow the impact of these ministries, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.